So the gospel, as revealed through Jesus Christ, confronts our typical conservative approach to life because our conservative approach to life is literary accuracy, whether it's the Bible or the Constitution or whatever. It is performance-based, that we are doing everything absolutely right according to the script that is written, and the, the gospel comes along and confronts that. Protestant conservatism and the Bible today on In the Shadow of the Cross. of In the Shadow of the Cross. I am still Lauren Rosser, and I am here with Jim Durkin. Hello. And Michael Harden. Good morning. And we are continuing our journey looking at the Bible. And this week, we are going to look specifically at what could Protestant conservatism do better with the scriptures. And then, don't worry, we're going to be fair. Next next week, we're going to look at what could a liberalism do better. So we're gonna we're gonna take a look at what the strengths are in these and what are the weaknesses. So we're starting with conservatism this time. So, so guys, what do you think? What could Protestant conservatism do better with the scriptures? Go ahead, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I, I'm tempted to say everything, but but that's, that's uh, so. When we were talking about this, and I suggested we start here because we're really starting with the Reformation and a Reformation view of uh, of Scripture. I mean, we can trace the way we view Scripture back through the centuries, specifically to John Calvin. And uh, but but even before that, I mean, you can certainly go back through the Middle Ages and back to Augustine, even uh, who want to view the scriptures as, you know, written by God. God wrote this text. I when I come to the Reformation tradition, when I come to the Reformation, I have participated in all three major branches, Lutheran, Reformed and Anabaptist. I've been in all these traditions. I've experienced them all. I'm familiar with their, you know, liturgies and their various theologies and the various forms they take. Uh, I first, my first systematic theology when I was uh, just 19 years old in class, we were reading Burkauer, the Dutch Reformed uh, uh, theologian, you know, uh, very Calvinist. So, the Anabaptists, Luther, and Calvin, there's three different ways to view the authority of Scripture in those movements. And then there still is the Roman Catholic way to view the authority of Scripture, okay? Which is that the bishops, together, in harmony, interpret the Scripture for the people. And, and that would be beautiful if that's really what it was all about, <laughs> But with, with Luther, uh, Luther engages in canon criticism, and that's big. You know, which, should we have these certain books in the New Testament? I mean, Luther opens up that question. He will not give authority 
to certain parts of the New Testament. He's, he's kind of like a Sadducee, only the Torah, not the prophets, you know. And then you have uh, the division uh, between the Calvinists and the Anabaptists, and it's important to note that Calvin really doesn't develop his doctrine of Scripture until after 1539, when he's encountered the Anabaptists. In the first edition of his Institutes, it's still he's still following Luther's small catechism, and he's very Lutheran, but then he encounters the Anabaptists, and it's their view of Scripture that really caused Calvin to make the Old Testament and the New Testament on equal plane. God wrote it. The whole thing is God's word. Bam, bam. So, so let me let me ask you real quick. What what was it about the Anabaptist view that that made Calvin decide to go that direction? Yes. So their argument was that the New Testament abrogated the Old Testament. That that's their language. You know, the apostolic scriptures abrogated Mm -hmm. the Jewish scriptures, and there was a new law, and that new law was the Sermon on the Mount. Okay. So that that meant doing the one thing that nobody would imagine doing, and that's refusing to carry a sword. Okay. Once you've got a citizenry that doesn't carry a sword, you have no fighting force. Right. Right. Okay, so Calvin took issue with that. Took issue with that. Took issue, and so he, yeah, so he comes up with his his developing doctrine of scripture through the fifteen fifty nine edition. Yeah. Okay, interesting. And so he, you were saying that he took it where the the Old Testament and New Testament were on equal equal ground. They were on equal grounds. Now, what Calvin did was um, Calvin was a lawyer, trained as a lawyer. And um, so what he did was he made a distinction between the ritual law and the moral law in the Jewish scriptures. Mm -hmm. Now, Judaism makes no such distinction. Yeah. Okay? But Calvin comes in as an early Western lawyer, makes the distinction between the ritual law, which is no longer applicable. It's there for types and shadows and allegory. But the moral law, that moral code runs through. You see, I have heard conservatives say that exact statement. I, I didn't realize that yeah. came from Calvin. That that yeah. I heard them say that that oh oh no we we don't follow the ritual law but we still follow the moral law. Right. Interesting. Okay. And so, so what we have now, how we've talked about that flat reading of scripture, is that kind of started with Calvin? Um. I wouldn't say a flat reading of Scripture starts with Calvin. Now, I, I'm going to rehabilitate Calvin here a little bit. First, um, I have a great respect and a fondness for Calvin. I have most of Calvin's works that are available in English, and I have read his Institutes a score of times. You know, I, I, I've learned a lot from Calvin. I've read lots and lots of books on Calvin. And there's a distinction to be made between Calvin and Calvinism. His successor, Theodore Beza, after Calvin died, was, in a sense, the inventor of Calvinism. Um, And I can go into that another time if you want. But all Calvin was trying to do really throughout his career was the same thing Augustine was trying to do. He was trying to protect the grace of God, that God's grace was not ever the result of any human desire, will, wish, achievement, anything, anything. There was to be no connection between just God's grace and, and, and the human. 
God was gracious because that's who God was. And Calvin, like Augustine, saw an awful lot of Christianity, you know, manipulating God, essentially. And, you know, think of the, the way that the medieval Catholic peasant, you know, with all of their superstition and the shrines and the relics and this and that and the other. Well, it's no different in modern Christian culture today with Christian celebrities, Christian this, Christian that. It's all the same, right? It's all the same superstition trying to get God to come and be present with us in this sanctuary. Dear Lord, come down, come down. This that that's not Calvin. So that's that's Calvinism. That's the stepchildren of you know evangelicalism and her horrid incestuous offspring fundamentalism. <laughs> I, I like that you. Um, really show intellectual integrity and in that it's so easy to just throw Calvin under the bus. But I like that you no. make that distinction between him and, and Calvinism that comes after him. Oh yeah. Big time. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to jump in. It's, it seems to be a pattern of um, maybe I'll go so far as to say of conservatism to throw everything under the bus that I don't agree with. And when it comes to Calvin, when it comes to sometimes the early church fathers and their writings, having never read any of them, having only heard what somebody said, I repeat that with great authority and dismiss it all without doing any research on my own. And it's uh, it's really a travesty that... Uh, we do that. It's and, and it's acceptable. It's acceptable in certain Christian circles that if my teacher doesn't believe that and my teacher teaches me different, then it's acceptable for me to be just as dogmatic and, but that's what the Bible says. That's what my teacher says. That's what our church believes. And I find that to be, uh, actually, I find that to be offensive. I find it to be offensive to the message of the gospel of peace, the gospel of love. Well, the, I mean, if if the distortion um, can be traced to Calvin, it's prolongation and expansion can certainly be traced to the post-Calvinist Reformation tradition that stems from Theodore Beza. Um, the Heidelberg uh, writers, uh, Ursinus and oh, I forget the other guy that wrote the Heidelberg Confession, beautiful Reformed Confession, right? Uh, Post-Calvinist Reformed Confession. But uh, we ended up with Westminster mm-hmm. and the Puritans in England with Westminster, uh, bringing it over here. And then, of course, um, the Dutch would be heavily influenced by this same same Calvinism, this English Calvinism. Jim, you brought up this acceptance rejection motif. That's actually built into a lot of the confessions in the Reformed tradition. We accept thus and thus, Mm -hmm. we reject Mm -hmm. such and Mm -hmm. such, right? Right. And that's because what the the mistake the Reformed tradition made and um, it made it, <laughs> the mistake was actually made by a Lutheran pastor, but a Reformed theologian picked it up and turned it into the, something big, was to talk about the Bible as inerrant, 
and this occurs early on in the 17th century. And the Reformed writers, uh, Willebius, Turretini, um, I forget some of the others in there, they will develop an entire theory of Scripture around this in the in the early 17th century now at the very same time and kind of toward next week's episode you have the early enlightenment thinking going on right and i think you know the ben franklins of the world right okay so the conservatives have now to demonstrate they have to prove this thesis and they begin a tradition known as apologetics. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. And so they will start harmonizing everything, finding reasons for everything. Their, 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 whole, their whole purpose is to prove that the Bible's the Word of God. Right. Now, right. let's ask, what is it they really want? They really want to hear God. Mm-hmm. These are people mm-hmm. that are desperate to be in touch with the Lord. They long to know the will of God for their life. They long to do God's will. These are not bad people, okay? The problem is, in the Reformed tradition, whereas Calvin had this beautiful doctrine of holding together the Word and Spirit, and that's a phrase I think Jim used last week or the session before, at any rate, that's Calvin. Beautiful way of holding them together. And so did Karl Barth, you know, um, out of the Reformed tradition. But the Calvinists separated that. And so the Word became the text, and the Spirit was put into the text. The Spirit was no longer in the people. It was in the text. The text was in the Okay. Right? And so now if it's the Spirit's in the text, and you want to go to the text, you want to go at it with the most logical, deductive reasoning possible, and that's what happened in the Reformed tradition. They went Aristotle. They went all Aristotle on the Bible. They went into scholasticism. And everything was nitpicky, 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 right? And that's, I mean, the Lutherans couldn't take that. They they said, we're going to go become pietists, and we're going to show people you live this life. You know, you had uh, the rise of pietism there, the same. Because who wants dusty, dry theology and 45-minute sermons on homoousius? <laughs> right. <laughs> I know I don't. Yeah, and the Reformed tradition, I, I'm, I'm not kidding you, uh, they, they sell it. As, as though you are getting lush property in North Carolina, but when you get the title and you 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 go get the property, you realize it's in the middle of the Saharan desert. Wow! So we so we find ourselves in a situation where one brings out a certain set of scriptures, possibly cherry picked to kind of prove his point or their point, and immediately. There's another who will step forward and say, yes, I see what you're trying to say, but it can't be that way because, and then he has his cherry-picked yeah. scriptures, oh, yeah. and thus the debate, and each one trying to convince the other one that they're absolutely right, <laughs> and that in being right, that they're more connected to God. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
because uh, they're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's that's just pure ego. That's certainly, yeah, certainly. But it but it seems to be uh, getting back to the theme of of today's uh, conversation. It seems to be the conservative way. Yeah, well, it is that. Uh, I am accurate on my interpretation, therefore I am accurate in my relationship with God. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's fundamental to that Reformed tradition. You have to fall in line intellectually. I mean, it's very cultish. All fundamentalism is is Christianity gone to seed. It's it's all cultish. That's why there's 40,000 different denominations in the U.S., you know? All claiming to worship Jesus, all claiming to interpret the Bible correctly. Can I put a disclaimer on that? Yeah. We're not saying that conservative Christianity is a cult. No. But that it is culty, a cultish practice. Yes, they engage in certain cultish practices. Yeah. Yeah, they're very fetishistic about Scripture. But let's turn that one around. What is it they seek? They seek the authority or the author of this collection of literature that they know has changed them. They've had, they've had their encounter with Jesus. They had that personal relationship, that experience, whatever you want to call it. Right. Right. That's the evangelical model. It's part of the evangelical models, that personal relationship thing. And, and now all they're looking to do is keep that connection alive. And there's two ways to do that. One, you get into a church. Okay, now you're part of a social group. And the second is you daily study in the Word of God, okay? They're looking for that authority. Now, the reality, and Jim, you've experienced this, I've experienced this, we can interpret texts at one point in our life one way, and 20 years later we're reading them very differently, you know? Very differently. Yeah. And now, and, is is that the? It would it be safe to say that that's an attempt to validate experience? Well, I, I think our experience is very valuable. It's, I, it's, I it's believe that have. too. That's all but we have. We, tr- we attempt to validate that by find by the our interpretation of scripture. Oh yeah, we read ourselves into scripture, and so this that's is what one, I mean. Yeah. yeah. So this is my argument against people reading the Bible. I mean, I, people say to me, I want to read the Bible, and I'm going to tell them, don't. Um, or if you're going to read the Bible, you know, read the Gospel of Mark, read the Gospel of John, you know. Um, don't read Paul. You, you won't get him. You know, I mean, there's so much background that you need in order to understand the historical context. There's just reams of it. And thank God for all the scholars for the last 400 years who've dug all that up. You know, we we know so much more about Jesus and Paul's world than we could imagine or think. And so we have a context. But for our conservative friends, they're looking for that authority. That's why when I set about last year in those 14 talks I did, I wanted to see if I could develop a doctrine of the authority of Scripture apart from a theory of inspiration. In other words, can I develop a doctrine of the authority of Scripture that Scripture is saying something, quote, unquote, divine, but I can do it f- from a scientific 
perspective, and that's where the mimetic theory and the cross and the hermeneutic of the cross and anthropology, all that comes in, right? If that was possible, then one, we could learn to read scripture without religious lenses, apart from religion, and yet go to the text trusting the tradition about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Yeah, that's that's really good. Um, so, oh, go ahead. You, I think you were about to say something, Michael. No, I, 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 if 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 you wanted to put me in a room, and I had to choose between, I mean, and you know, both are kind-hearted people, but if I had to choose between talking theology all day with a conservative evangelical or would I want to talk theology all day with a very progressive, liberal, politically correct type? I would take the conservative every time. It, it, could you expand on that? Why, well, why one, is that? One, they have had an encounter with Jesus. Your typical liberal hasn't. Second, they respect scripture. And I'm an exegete. I mean, I, I sit open my Greek New Testament, bam, you know. And when I say, well, that's not what the Greek says, what are they going to do? Argue with me? <laughs> right. Yeah, and that's that's true. And that, that's why I wanted to ask you that question, because I've known that about you. And, and that that is one of the things on the conservative side, which was the tradition I was raised in, uh, that, that I do admire was um, they did instill in me a love for the scriptures they and did. a respect for them. They did. And, I, and I'm more grateful for that. That's the part that I'm very grateful for when it comes to that. I hear I hear what you're saying, and I'm not arguing with it, but I have heard on numerous occasions that um, similar thoughts to, well, what good is the Bible if I have to be a Greek scholar to understand it? And then the same person will pick apart any newer translation other than the 1611 authorized or whatever they think is the one that's most accurate. And your comments about coming to the Bible with a non-religious approach to it is the only one that's going to help us to understand it. How How do we help the conservative who neither wants to learn Greek nor understands how to approach the Bible from a non-religious standpoint. Yes. So, first of all, you, 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 can't, you can't convince anybody um, through an intellectual argument. Correct. That's, that's just a fact. I will not get into an intellectual argument with somebody. People will have their eyes opened People have their eyes open when their world comes crashing down. Absolutely. The death mm-hmm. of a child, spouse, loved one, parent, uh, loss of a job, uh, anything, anything big, okay, creates a faith crisis. And right. the world over, whenever that happens, there's a plea, come God, save us. But God doesn't do that. And so the deus ex machina view of God falls apart. And people quit believing. They, they, they think there's a God out there. Yeah, they, they, okay, there's a God out there, but you know what? 
<laughs> Nobody's got him figured out, and he ain't saying jack shit to us about who he is, so who knows, right? Right. Right? We'll just try to be good people. The conservative needs to know that the most basic fundamental truth, which is the revelation of the Father in the Son by the Spirit, that Trinitarian one God is still remains absolutely intact in this new way of thinking. Okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In other words, we can affirm with the greater church the Nicene Creed. Okay? Right. And we can even affirm the third article that says, and I believe in the Holy Spirit who spoke through the prophets. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. a simple statement. It's not defined. It doesn't say how the Holy Spirit spoke, when the Holy Spirit spoke, what the Holy... You see what I'm saying? Sure. It just establishes a relationship between word and spirit. Okay. And we do that exact same thing. But we today can do this through a very Jesus-focused lens. A, a lens that just doesn't simply... Um, understand Jesus as this figure in in ancient Judaism, but as one, we we understand him textually, how the writers perceived him. We understand what the scholars are saying about the historical Jesus. We understand what the church says about the traditional Jesus. And we also have our own experience, both individually and in corporate groups of the Lord. And each of these function as checks and balances, and it's the patterns that begin to emerge that we know are, in fact, uh, the the revelation of the Father to us. When we see such love and and, an extraordinary grace, and we have no need to protect it. Bart says the gospel doesn't need defending. You know, so we don't have to do all these crazy apologetics. Think of the freedom of not having to do apologetics for the Bible and yet being able to go to it, read it, and be touched by the Spirit. How easy that could be. It really is a freedom, um, as you say that, Michael, because I was thinking about how many years of my life were spent trying to defend the Scriptures as as opposed to just loving my neighbor and, and... living them, if you will, instead of, instead of trying to defend and protect and, and fill every gap. And, and, and then especially on the Protestant side, you know, trying to, um, remove every inconsistency and defend everything. Well, well, no, this is really not a contradiction, you know, and, and all of that. And, and it really is a freeing place to not be in that position anymore where you're, you're having to do that. Well, I think, I think, um, a thought that that comes to my mind is when you when you talk about how we approach scripture from the perspective of the spirit is in us interpreting scripture rather than the spirit being in scripture itself the difference is um that if if I approach it from okay the spirit's in me and I'm now going to sit down and I'm going to read the bible it seems like what the Bible becomes to me, whether it's New Testament, Old Testament, whatever, uh, whether it's gospel or Pauline epistles, I'm approaching it from trying to find the way I'm supposed to live 
to prove that I'm a Christian. As opposed to the Spirit being in the Word, it's the Word, the living Word, that's actually transforming me. It's not an act on my part. It's the Word that's doing the job. Yes. Is yeah. it, Would that be a correct way to put it? I think that's a, a summary of Paul's argument in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where he says there's the letter of the text, and then, you know, there's a hermeneutic, and the hermeneutic has is the Moses veil, you know, mm-hmm. and how Jesus comes and frees us from that hermeneutic. And, uh, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So I think you just summarized Paul's 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So, so you bring out that the Spirit spoke to us um, in, in the Nicene Creed. The Spirit speaks to us through the prophets. Okay? Yeah, that's what the Creed says, and who has spoken through the prophets. And has spoken through the prophets, correct. Now we have the writing of Scripture that says, in times past he spoke through the prophets, but now no. he speaks to us through his Son. Right. Right. And 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 not through, excuse me, my friends, but not through the written Bible, the Word of God. He speaks to us through the Word of God, His Son Jesus. Yes, this the is living the embodiment. Word. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and this this I think you know. Here's the thing, though, Jim, is if I walk into a Baptist church and they're talking about Jesus, I won't worship their Jesus. Their Jesus is not the real Jesus. Their their Jesus is some sick Marvel comic superhero that's got kind of a paranoid, delusional approach to the human species. I I don't want that's not Jesus to me. This is why for me, I, I we're we are at the end of Christianity. We're at the end of Western Christianity. Okay. How she's gonna come out of this thing thirty years from now, well that's for our, our kids and grandkids to see, I guess. But it's going to be very different. Western Christendom is is on its way out, and I'm I trust in the Spirit, and I trust that the Spirit will continue to, to bring the gospel. I hope more and more people's eyes will be opened to to this newer, more I think apostolically authentic reading of the biblical text that's well informed by many 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 disciplines. It's it's not a single hermeneutic being th- thrown on the Bible. It's it's just it's there's a congruence here, you know, uh, but it's less Aristotelian deduction and more of a networking of seeing patterns and congruences. And I like um, what Jim was saying, uh, and you clarified, Michael, about. Um, about that, that Jesus being the word, Jesus being the message. Um, and, and so, but I, I want to clarify this because this is one of those areas where it could get muddled where, you know, two people having the same conversation, meaning two completely different things um, for our listeners out there, because most people would go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus, Jesus is the message. Jesus is the message. And then they'll, they'll plug in all this stuff into Jesus that's not what we're talking about. Can, can you guys expand on that, on, on what, what we mean when we say Jesus Jesus is the message, Jesus is the word, not, not the Bible? I think there's two questions here. Okay. The first one goes to the first 
part of what you were saying. The second question has to do with this business of Jesus is the word, the Bible is the word. Um, and I apologize, I started immediately thinking into the second thing, and so I forgot what that first thing was. <laughs> well, let me, let me. Uh, okay. I, I think I, I picked up on that, and I think it has something to do a little bit with what you were saying. If I walked into a typical Baptist church and I would not be able to worship the Jesus that they're they're referring to. I think the first question, and and it's very well explained uh, in your book, The Jesus-Driven Life, but um, for those that haven't read that or aren't familiar with your writings, could you explain who is Jesus, the yeah. real Jesus? Will the real Jesus stand up? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so there... I can come at this from many directions, so I'll just make point after point after point. First of all, uh, unanimously in the gospel tradition, uh, Jesus is nonviolent. Jesus does right. not carry Caesar's coin. He doesn't carry a sword. Um, Jesus teaches nonviolence, non-retribution, non-retaliation. Uh, he lives it, even at the end in Gethsemane, where in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, I could call legions of angels down. I could start the holy war you guys want. We could wipe everyone off the map. I could save myself. But that's not my father's will. Right. You know, so the first thing is, and, and I, it, it has to be established. It can be done a number of ways uh, in the gospel text. But uh, that Jesus was pacifistic, which means the father is also non-retributive. Non-retaliatory. Okay. Now, what this what this does is it differentiates a non-sacrificial reading from all other, and they're in the plurals, sacrificial readings. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's step number one. Um, step number two is to recognize that Jesus is. What, what it means to say Jesus is fully divine is to say that he reached a place in his human spiritual maturity where all he sought was the Father's will, no matter what it meant. He was able to do the things he did, not because he was God, but because he was human. Yes. Filled Feel with it. only seeking the Father's will at any given moment. Very good. Um, there's much more we could do, but it's that it's getting us to that distinction between a non-sacrificial approach to Jesus in the Scripture based upon his character and his life, as opposed to all the sacrificial readings of Jesus that are out there that, Oh, he got angry. He got angry in the temple. <laughs> You know, he said, go get swords. You know, it's like, kids, you got to learn to exegete. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. I, I love how, though, talking about the scriptures, we're talking about the Bible, and this this ends up once again. Every podcast I know, so we always come back to Jesus. 
And yeah. I, I love that. I love that it because it's, it goes right to the core of everything we're saying that, that he is the message. He is the, the lens, the, um, the, the cruciform lens through which we look at the scriptures. And so I love that we always come back to, to him. I, I think that's awesome. Jesus, beautiful um, savior, glorious Lord. And now the songs running through your head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. Okay, what's the next words? Okay. So Emmanuel, the second half God is with us. Yeah. The second half of uh Lauren's question then is when we have an accurate picture of who Jesus is, we have to apply to that what the Bible says that he is the word of God. He is the word that was made flesh and dwelt among us. And so historically, those of us that were raised in the conservative evangelical church have been taught that the Bible is the word of God. Right. And so Lauren's question is, how do you, uh, how do you change the emphasis from the Bible being the word of God to Jesus himself being the living word? Well, first of all, you you obviously have to take what the Scripture does. The Scripture does not elevate um, Torah to Jesus' level or Jesus to the level of Torah. Uh, the Scripture, the New Testament, the apostolic writings uh, have an, a very clear demarcation between the Word of God, the Torah, and Jesus. And the Gospel of John opens with this. Uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. And um, the Torah was given through Moses. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it's it's the covenant properties, chesed and emeth, grace and truth, that are given in Jesus. Mm-hmm. So there's, okay, you know, and you have Hebrews 1, the great text you just cited there, rich text, a Christological text that says, so much more about Jesus than many texts. It talks about him being our present intercessor. You know, it's a beautiful text. Um, the creator of all things. The, the Father has, the, the writer is saying that the Father, in many ways, including texts, dreams, visions, prophets, you know, history, whatever you want, but the Father's tried to communicate with us. And now he gave us a son. Mm-hmm. Chip off the old mm-hmm. block. Mm-hmm. And Ephesians 1, uh, that great uh, Trinitarian hymn that, that uh, Paul composes there, um, where everything is Christocentric, 13 times in that, the longest sentence in the New Testament, 202 words, but it's a, it's a hymn. But 13 times, in Christ, in him, in Jesus. I mean, it's very Christologically focused. And, of course, Paul says, I preach Christ crucified. Bam, there's an even narrower now starting point. So, uh, and then we recognize that, as one ancient writer said, the Gospels are passion narratives with extended introductions. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, okay. You know, and so we can focus and focus and we can begin to find our way. Right. Well, all right. That's a good answer, guys. Thanks. Um, 
because one of the things I find interesting is is as you were talking, Michael, about the opening of the book of John, and uh, and and you were talking about how in Jesus came uh, grace and truth. Um, the way I was always taught to read that was it's kind of like it, it was kind of like Jesus is. 2.0 of like the Old Testament because it's like, well, the law came through Moses. Yeah, okay, that's cool. And then grace and truth came through Jesus. It's like he's the sequel. Instead, what, what you seem to be highlighting is that the writer's making a, um, a contrast, not a, um, not a sequel there. So two observations here. One is as you move through the fourth gospel, uh, Jesus never says our law. He always says, your law, your Torah. Interesting. Second, there is a Jesus-Moses parallelism that runs through the fourth gospel. If Moses turned rivers to blood, Jesus turned water to wine. Uh, Oh, wow. There is the manna, uh, Shekinah, uh, glory, um, six, seven, uh, and eight uh, sequence, uh, the light of the world, um, mm-hmm. it's a Jesus Moses parallelism, you know. Jesus is the good shepherd, you know. Uh, again, with reference to Moses as the shepherd of Israel, and oh, on wow. and on and on and on. So, anybody that wants to say, you know, like your conservative friends interpreted the text, you'd have to say, but that's not how the author understands the Jesus Moses relationship. Right. So, yeah, because I remember hearing that. You, lights were going on in my, my brain when you were sharing that because I remember hearing that all the things he hit on, like, I am the bread of life and, and yeah. I am the light of the world and all of that I was all – dr- yeah. Exactly. It was all directly uh, directed at things related to Moses and the law. And and so there is not this I am the it's not I am the sequel. Right. <laughs> it's right. it's it's rather it's there there is he's setting up a, a, a contradiction, if you will. Um that might not be the right word for that, but it's but it's oh go ahead. Well, it's a recognition that the old, whatever it meant, uh is now being replaced by something that has meaning in the present. Wow. And then that, as soon as you said that, I went to the whole thing. You can't pour new, uh, new wine into old wine skins. So same thing. He's so, so it really goes to is, is our friend Steve Crosby once said the new Testament, the new covenant is entirely new. It's, it, it's, it's not like just addition. Well, okay. But let's think this through the term. There are two words for Greek. For new, kainos and neos, neo, neos, uh, we, brand new, and uh, kainos, renewed, okay? Okay. So I would want to be careful here because the New Testament is the kaine diatheke, it's, it's the renewed covenant. And it's specifically in Hebrews tied to that promissory covenant of Jeremiah 31. In those days, I'll put my Torah in their hearts. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? Yeah. And and Good. and I was thinking about that right when I was saying that I was realizing because just like was mentioned here earlier about he spoke in times past through the prophets. It's like we're not removing that. We're not no. saying no, no. That like like we said, we're not going um, Marcion and saying the old covenant. It's it's you know the the Old Testament, the the Jewish scriptures are, are mean nothing now. That's that's not yeah. at all where we're where we're going with that. Let's do this then. Let's say 
What is it that the New Testament can teach us? It can teach us how to read the Jewish scriptures. Because these writers are citing them, they're using them, they're reading them, right? They're interpreting them in the New Testament. Right, right. But let's do this. Let's recognize that the New, New Testament writers are interpreting Second Temple interpretations of Jewish scriptures, right? Yeah. What are Jewish scriptures interpreting? Ancient mythology. Okay. The they you know there's an origin story of the creation, just as there is in others, right? There's histories like in Babylon and Sumeria, right, and the Chaldeans and Egypt, and but this literature, this Jewish literature, has something that this other literature doesn't have. And that Jewish literature has the voice of the underdog, the innocent random victim that's getting shanghaied for no good reason at all except that the mob needs to get their bloodlust out. And that's to be differentiated from the victims out there in mythology who are always guilty, and even they agree, like Oedipus. Okay, what is it that Jesus is? He's the third victim. He's the forgiving victim. The buck stops with him. No more violence. I'm not passing that on. And he is the forgiving victim. He's the expression of the Father's heart to the human species. That if we want to think about divinity, we must think about the Father in terms of the Father's revelation and the Son is love, all-encompassing, compassion and generosity that the concept of bounds and limits doesn't even begin to apply. That the Father is pure light, healing, life, and not Jaina's faced. Wow, that's really good, really beautiful. So the gospel, as revealed through Jesus Christ, confronts our typical conservative approach to life because our conservative approach to life is literary accuracy, whether it's the Bible or the Constitution or whatever, it is performance-based, that we are doing everything absolutely right according to the script that is written, and the, the gospel comes along and confronts that. Absolutely. The gospel is the biggest threat to the church there is. <laughs> it always has been. Wow. Could you expand on that? Well, the church is so captivated by the law, and I don't mean by the Jewish Torah, but now just simply by the category of law. Mm-hmm. The church lives in legalese. It says we're, oh, we're justified by faith and grace, but we, 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 are, we are really every day existentially justified by how good we are, how bad we are, and did I have that bad thought, did I do this and that, and we do sin management. Just We're just like medieval peasants, man, you know? <laughs> let, me, let me give you a quick example of that. Uh, many years ago, probably back in the time when Lauren was uh, still a pup and <laughs> attended my church, um, I started teaching on my understanding uh, of, of grace, uh, coming to certain 
differences in my uh, my understanding through Paul's writings and whatever. And after what I thought was a particularly excellent message on grace and breaking with the laws of performance and obligation and regulation and whatever, I had a number of people come up to me and ask me, so next week are you going to tell us how to do this? (laughs) And the point being that we're so trained by law that even when we talk about breaking from law, people want to know how, just tell me the 10 ways to break from law and then I can do that. Right. That's really good, Jim. Well, and this is where that early Christian ethical substratum comes in. You said, okay, it's pretty simple. Just look at your life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your resources, uh, all your mind, and whatever else. All your soul, all your strength, whatever. And listen, second part, love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you don't just do to others what you want them to do to you, and you're going to encounter an awful lot of uh, hatred in the world, so forgive 70 times 7. Learn to, to let it go and learn to recognize that God loves these people too, and, and God loves everyone. And, and, you know, the basic ethical substratum, don't carry a sword, be peace, be a peacemaker, you know, bop, bop, bop. And it's that simple. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. all you need to do. It's so good. But but that won't let me build my giant organization and make a name for myself, Michael. Not my problem. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And really good. And and is that because you've already built your organization, Michael? Yeah, me and my three best friends. <laughs> I've got the two of you. I've got the two of you. Actually, Lauren should be um, should be reminded of uh, Reservoir Dogs, and he should be singing "Stuck in the Middle" with you right now. Exactly. <laughs> right. Well, that that you know, and and what you're saying, I I really appreciate that. It. You know, I go back and I'm, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna take an Old Testament scripture out of totally out of context, but but it has been a guide to me as as I've uh, been on this journey for twenty years, really, or or maybe a little longer, of kind of de- deconstructing phase by phase. That there is a way called the way of holiness. And it's so simple that a wayfaring man, even if he's a fool, won't err in it. And again, like I say, uh, okay, I know I'm taking it totally out of context, but it's been a guiding principle to me that if this thing isn't simple, if this thing is so difficult, so convoluted, that you have to have a master degree in it before you can figure it out, we aren't presenting the gospel. That's We're right. not presenting Jesus. That's right. We're presenting something, uh, you know, an idol. I don't know what we would call it, but we're an not presenting argument. the gospel. We're presenting an intellectual argument. Correct. And Correct. intellectual arguments don't save. No, they don't. No. Uh, actually, they put us in more bondage. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And that's Paul, by the way. Knowledge does not save. Correct. 
yeah. I think he said it puffs up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't need any more puffing up. I'm pretty puffy already. <laughs> But when, yeah. I really, when I look at my belly, I shouldn't say I've got a beer belly. I should say that's a lot of knowledge. Exactly. That's, that's just a lot <laughs> of knowledge. Head, so it went down to my belly. Oh, no, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> For me, it's a lot of knowledge of I know a lot about fast food. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> well, we'll have, we'll have some fun next week when we get to ask about the debits and benefits of how the liberal progressive tr- Protestant tradition interprets this. And, yeah. and, and I'm eager, we're, we're going to be uh, discussing that next week, and I'm eager to jump into that one because that's the arena that I grew up that's totally foreign to me. You know, they, they were the evil bad guys on the other side of the fence because, you know, I grew up in the conservative crowd. So. Well, as <laughs> we'll see, as we'll see, rightly so. Interesting. Because they are going to throw out the essential component of revelation, they are going to toss the doctrine of the Trinity. Ooh. So there, there you go, guys. You've got your, uh, your preview. There's the trailer for, for the coming <laughs> soon attraction next week. And, the- and on that note, guys, this has been great once again, and we're about out of time. So uh, first of all, uh, Michael, where can people find your, your books and your writings and your videos? Yeah, YouTube uh, videos will be lots and lots and lots, hundreds. And my books can be found at Amazon. Okay. And then, uh, Jim, where could folks find your your singular book, right, you, if you've written any more? One right now. I'm in the, uh, in the process of writing a second one uh, entitled The Gospel According to Love. Uh, but, but the book that I uh, wrote a, a couple of years ago is available on Amazon.com. You All can right. either bring up my name or the name of the book, Dying of Thirst on the Bank of the River. Awesome, and I'm, I love the title of your oh, yeah. the book you're working on right now. That's that's awesome. Can't wait to read that one when you're done. All right, well, guys, it's, well, it's just a rewrite of Michael's work. <laughs> <laughs> it's the paraphrase version. Look, 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 look. The gospel is the gospel, and and we must have many many modes of communicating this same message. Yes. We need the evangelists. We need the preachers. We need the pastors. We need the good-hearted shepherds. We need the, the those that, that can speak with the Spirit authentically. We need everybody on all modes, intellectual, everywhere. Because it really is quite simple. And we only You're need right. the intellectual part to deal with the nonsense of the world and the church. Yeah. Otherwise, we wouldn't even need that. We could just say, blah. <laughs> right. We're just going to be. Right. All right. Good point. All right, you guys. Well, we'll see you all next week. Okay, Lauren. <laughs> <laughs>